ReachMD XM160 now presents Second Opinion Live with hosts Drs. Matt Bernholtz and Michael Greenberg. Welcome to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD Radio XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Yes, you are. And I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. We're live. We're here and we've got a great show for you today as always. If you want to participate, you can on the phone, on the web, and on Twitter. As usual, we're covering all kinds of fascinating topics this week. Fascinating. And today, we're discussing the ins and outs of creating a successful clinical practice with Dr. Neil Baum, author of the popular book, Marketing Your Clinical Practice Ethically, Effectively, and Economically. He's got some good advice for anybody looking to grow their practice. I'll grow my practice. And you got to check out the newest addition to our website at ReachMD.com. It's called the ReachMD Career Center. And it's got access to literally thousands of jobs nationwide for healthcare professionals. Today we'll be talking with Tim Rush, whose technology and network is behind the ReachMD Career Center. He'll tell us how to get the most from these resources and find you a job, Matt. All right. And what kind of show would this be without some Believe It or Not headlines? Coming up, an Indian yogi who doesn't eat or drink anything ever. <laughs> also, using DVDs in place of anesthesia. And, of course, the man who bleeds green. All this and a few other surprises on this week's Second Opinion Live. Our number again, 888-MD1-REACH. Give us a call. I'm the man who bleeds Greenberg. First up, our regular feature, Curious Headlines. And today I can't resist moving right in on this yogi who says he hasn't taken food or water for the past 70 years. Not 70 minutes, which is Matt's cutoff, but 70 years. Touche. The claim surfaced in the mainstream media recently after the 83-year-old man spent two weeks in an Indian hospital monitored constantly by a team of 35 military doctors. He didn't eat, drink, urinate, or defecate, and apparently he did fine. <laughs> maybe he lost a pound. Maybe that tops. No, I, I should do that. The docs say he produced urine, but it got reabsorbed on repeat scans. They caught it all on tape. Okay, yeah, which conveniently we don't have access to, right? We can get the tapes. <sighs> I swear. In fact, beyond the reporter's claims on this guy, we don't even have anything here, do we? I mean, I'll, I'll bet some dieting companies are freaking out right about now, but nobody's sharing the evidence. So what are we supposed to make of the news? Well, we know this isn't the first time this yogi was studied by the Indian military. And back mm. in 2003, they kept all the videos and blood work under wraps, mm. like he's an alien Sounds or like something. a conspiracy. That's yeah. right. So don't expect too much sharing this time around either. But you have to admit it, it's really cool to see researchers scratching their heads saying, we don't know how this guy is alive or how he does it. <laughs> I certainly have I, no idea. <laughs> I could not eat for more than 70 seconds. <laughs> Well, why don't we take a big leap here for a second and suppose the claim is legit rather than total fraud. So the yogi says he was blessed by a goddess at a young age and feeds off an invisible elixir. So was elixir. I, but I still eat. <laughs> but he's getting this invisible elixir, as he puts it. And that's all well and good, I think. But I want to know how someone can get energy outside of food and not be a plant. Because this is like one of those inborn errors of metabolism to the nth degree, if do, you follow do, me. Do, 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 do. I don't know, Matt, but <laughs> I'm looking forward to the day when we don't have to eat to live because I'm all about living to eat. You Ooh, know that. right there with you, brother. All right, why don't we shift gears to another headline? This one's on the latest alternative to general anesthesia you might be offering your patients before surgery someday. It's called the DVD. That's right. The BBC reports on a new trend by some anesthesiologists in the UK to offer a spinal anesthetic and a selection of movies for patients undergoing any operations below the waist. The rationale is to use distraction to limit use of general and in turn speed up recovery times. Why don't they listen to our show? Well, they fall right asleep. The docs who have beta tested this option for 18 months say it's been working great. There's no complications, no complaints. The only surprise so far, the patient's choice of DVDs. Apparently, 
the guide to successful pole fishing is the most popular pick in the UK to date. <laughs> Why would you want to fish for poles? I don't get it. Well, it is the UK, so there you go. No offense to you English people. None though. taken out, Fred. All right. Okay, up next, the story goes back a couple of years, but it's so unique we had to put it out there for you just in case you see it. Hmm. Imagine beginning surgery on a patient and watching the first cut ooze green blood. Yeah. Now, this was an actual case published in The Lancet presenting a Canadian patient who began bleeding Vulcan style, dark green, live long and prosper. You had to go on Star Trek on us Yes, I did. (laughs) It was my one chance and I'm taking it. But look, it turns out the green blood was attributed to the patient's large dose of sumatriptan with 200 milligrams per day. And this caused a rare side effect called self-hemoglobinemia. Look, I can even pronounce that. Where sulfur from the drug got incorporated into the hemoglobin of red blood cells. The big picture here is that the side effect was still benign, scary looking, mm. but the surgery still went fine and the patient's blood color returned to normal within five weeks of stopping the drug. Just keep that drug history in mind if this Vulcan syndrome hits your patient and maybe he's watching the wrong DVD. It's possible. Pole fishing is not the most popular choice in America. <laughs> All right, you Trekkie, and, which is ironic because I'm a Trekkie too, but I had to make fun of you for it. With that wild case solved, why don't we introduce our first guest for today's show? We're speaking with Dr. Neil Baum, Associate Clinical Professor of Urology at Tulane Medical School in New Orleans, and author of the popular book, Marketing Your Clinical Practice Ethically, Effectively, and Economically, now in its fourth edition. He's a national speaker to doctors, hospitalists, and medical practices on practice management, and he joins us today to share some expertise on what he coins the four pillars of a successful clinical practice. Neil, great to have you with us today. Thank you, Matt. It's really a pleasure to be back on ReachMD. So listen, we have a question because we want to get to know the real Neil Baum. We know you're a practicing urologist and a busy one, which I'm sure a lot of our listeners would assume means you probably don't have a ton of free time. So in your life, how did you come to focus on and write about this particular subject of marketing your practice? It was about 20 years ago that I was interviewed by American Medical News, a publication I know very near and dear to your heart, Dr. Greenberg, as you were a columnist in the same publication for 15 years. And they came in and interviewed me and were given a tour of the office, and they said, you are doing some incredible things here in the way that you run your practice. You're doing things to make your practice more efficient, more productive. You have a staff that seems to be highly energized and enthusiastic. Would you share what you do with your medical colleagues? It didn't take me but a few seconds to say, yes, I would. And at that, I started writing a column at which after three years, a monthly column after three years, I took all of those columns and expanded them into a book chapter, which then became the first edition of Marketing Your Clinical Practice. With that, my whole medical career took a different track. In addition to having a clinical medical practice, which I enjoyed and I considered almost now to be my laboratory where I test out some of these ideas, I found that I was called upon by colleagues and other medical staffs and pharmaceutical industry to share some of my ideas on how to make your practice more productive, more profitable, and also at the end of the day to say, I've enjoyed myself. I've had a good time practicing medicine. And so with that, I became a author and then I soon became a speaker. 
And then I continued to write the articles and the columns, and that became the second, third. Now we're in the fourth edition, 175,000 books sold. I'm happy to say it's now been translated into Spanish and sold in Latin and South America. So what got you to take that tour of AM News? Was it that you wanted to see, or did they ask you? They asked me. They said, you're doing some very simple concepts that you have here that don't involve advertising, but do involve practice promotion, and that we deem that this would be of use to your colleagues. And the ideas that I have, I've always tried to have ideas that couldn't be done just by Neil Baum, that could be done by the Michael Greenbergs of this world and all of our colleagues, regardless if they are in urology, primary care, even radiology. The only group that I haven't been able to uh, target is pathology. I just don't think they are in the business of marketing and practice promotion. There's exceptions to that. But for the most part, all the physicians, regardless of their specialty, regardless of their areas of interest and expertise, can take the ideas that I have used and tested in my practice and can easily and inexpensively adopt them and implement them into their practices. Well, see, I think that's an important point because here's what interests me. I mean, when we talk about your book, I'm sure a lot of us hear the term or see the term marketing. We think, okay, so this must be a business self-help book. But when I look through the content, I see that at its core, it's really about enriching the doctor-patient relationship. And it looks like the better business is almost a convenient byproduct. Do you agree with that? I completely agree that it's enhancing the doctor-patient relationship the doctor's relationship with his or her staff, and the doctor's relationship with his or her colleagues. Those are three of the four pillars, and it really comes down to communication and relationship development, and you have to have all three of those you know, to make it work. So let me take a step back with you further, Neil. Before you got to AM News and when you first started to do some of the seminal work, what happened in your life that you started to even think about these things? Because there's a lot of our listeners out there who go like, wow, how did this guy start to even get the idea to think about this? It was 1978, and I moved with my family from Houston, Texas to New Orleans. I moved into a building that had seven urologists and a hospital staff that had 14 full-time practicing urologists. And I clearly remember about six to eight weeks after being in practice, I walked into my very tiny office and I looked at the file cabinet and let the truth be told, there were more alphabet dividers than there were patients' charts. And I said to the receptionist, I said, please close that cabinet. If we did lucky enough to get a patient, I wouldn't want them to see the reality what's behind that file cabinet. And so please close the cabinet. At that time, I saw that I needed to do something different because if I were to wait in order to develop a practice, it would be forever. And so at that point, I decided to, one, make a concerted effort 
to see every patient on time. The other practices in the community told patients to come at 10 o'clock and at 1.30. And whoever got there first, that's how they were seen. I said, no, I'm going to do it differently. I'm going to be an on-time physician. And I made that commitment to myself and to the staff of one that I had, that if we said to a patient, you are going to be seen at a designated time, they were seen at that time. Second, I decided that I was going to go out and meet my colleagues in the community. And I started with ones about the same age as myself. I went out to those physicians, told them I was new in town, introduced myself, gave them articles about my areas of interest and expertise, and I offered to see their most difficult patients. I said, send me a patient that's got a complicated problem that the others can't seem to solve. Give me a chance with your difficult patients. And then I started going out into the community and speaking and talking. I went to nursing homes. I went to senior citizen programs. I went to junior league functions. And I found that, you know, going out there and leaving, you know, a handout there and offering, you know, to make appointments for patients right on the spot was a way of generating, you know, new patients to my practice and also enhancing my relationships with my colleagues because I knew full well that it wasn't going to happen sitting in my office and watching the four walls. So it was by necessity that I had to go out and do things that I thought were going to work, but I also thought that were ethical and appropriate. I didn't take out ads in the newspaper. I didn't do extensive newsletters or getting mailing lists and doing those things. Nothing wrong with those things, but I didn't think that was the most effective route. I thought developing these relationships and also making sure that every patient the few that I had had a positive experience with my practice and told them to please go tell the patient, that, the doctor that referred them, what a positive experience they had. And I also asked them if they had any friends that had problems that would be covered by my areas of interest and expertise, they would consider sending them to me. And so the good book says, ask and you shall receive. And I did ask. I asked for them to pass on the good word about the positive experience they were having in the practice. So that's how it all got started, which then came to the articles and then the book. Since the time that you had this, what looks to be word of mouth and very personal way of marketing your practice from your origins as a clinical urologist over to, let's say people are coming into practice now, and we have the advent of the internet, we have very quick, streamlined, fast ways in which patients can and do rate and review their physicians on sites that a lot of physicians don't like. There are even legal issues with them. But in your case, you know, it sounds like review sites like that and other means in which patients can get the word out about their physicians might fall in line with some of the strategies that you had for your marketing. Is that right? 
I believe that the young physician today probably couldn't duplicate exactly what I had done. They're going to have to get into social network marketing. They're going to have to have a presence on the internet. And you often find a young doctor goes into practice with another group of physicians and they're resistant to that. And yet the young doctor truly understands the magic of the internet and the power of the internet. And he's going to have to you know, come into this practice and say, I'm going to take that on as my project. I'm going to be the webmaster for this practice. I'm not going to do it myself, but I'm going to oversee this because I believe we have to have an Internet presence. And I think that the young doctor of today has got to be very frank and forthright and somewhat on the aggressive side with his older associates, getting them involved. Now, they're very comfortable with their practice and, you know, doing it the older way. I think there's a younger way, you know, that's going to be involved in doing this. And I think the young doctors understand that. They're very comfortable with Twitter. You know, they're very comfortable with Facebook. And you ask a 55 or 60-year-old physician, they've heard the words Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, but they don't know how powerful and potentially helpful it is to their practice. The young doctor has got to be an educator and got to get them to do the buy-in. I think the things that I did, you know, 31 or 32 years ago, yes, they're going to be helpful, but what really has to be helpful is that internet presence today. Does your book address that? Yes. The new book talks about electronic marketing and practice promotion. There's a whole section on you know, what constitutes an effective website and a web presence, mainly is that you know, five years ago, it was adequate to have what I called brochureware. That was taking your brochure putting it into electronic format and making it a web page and say, you know, this is what I do, this is where I work, this is my philosophy, this is my mission statement, these are our practice guidelines, you know, that we expect regarding prescription refills, regarding insurance, and they put that on and call that a website. Today, the public is looking for an interactive website. They're looking to interact with their physician. A patient has a question regarding a medication, a side effect. He or she doesn't want to take off two to four hours to make an appointment to come to the doctor's office, to park the car, to come into the practice, to wait 20 to 30 minutes to see the doctor, see the doctor for five minutes, ask the question, pay the bill or the copay and leave. The young patient of today, the one I'm talking about who's between 20 and 45 years of age, expects that the doctor is going to have a web page and they're going to be able to communicate with their doctor on the website. And I personally believe there's nothing wrong with charging a patient for that. I believe that when you make a decision on behalf of your patient and you're medically at risk and liable for that decision, I think it's okay to charge the patient. And if you tell them, yes, I'll communicate with you over the Internet and I will answer your emails in a timely fashion and there's a fee 
for that communication. I truly believe if patients are given the choice, would you pay $25 to talk with me over the Internet and establish patient? Now, wait a minute. Please don't misinterpret that you should start to do this when the patient, you don't have a doctor-patient relationship. This is an existing patient. I want to differentiate that, and I hope I'm clear. Yeah, that's no, so you evident. Are. Now, yeah. are you asking patients to pay? I mean, insurance companies would not recognize No, insurance this. companies at the moment won't pay. I think this is the future because I think this is what patients are expecting. I think patients are expecting to be able to make an appointment over the Internet. If you can go, you know, get a ticket for the theater or make a reservation in the restaurant over the Internet, I believe the patient today expects to be able to do at least the same thing with a medical practice. We've been speaking with Dr. Neil Baum, Associate Clinical Professor of Urology at Tulane Medical School in New Orleans, author of the popular book, Marketing Your Clinical Practice Ethically, Effectively, and Economically, again now in its fourth edition. Thanks again, Neil. It's great to have you with us. Can I also mention to the audience that if they're interested in the book or would like to look at sample chapters, they can go to Amazon.com and type in Marketing plus Neil Baum, and they will see the book, the table of contents, and several sample chapters. Absolutely. And uh, thanks again. Thank you. Look forward to being on again. All right. Why don't we keep the ball rolling on career improvement with our next guest, Tim Rush. Tim's a specialist in healthcare staffing and the founder of Health Jobs Nationwide and Physician Jobs Nationwide. And we've invited Tim on Second Opinion Live to introduce our listeners to ReachMD's newest feature, our career center, which we can access at ReachMD.com. The site is literally packed with thousands of positions for healthcare professionals, and Tim is here to help us get the best use of it. Tim, welcome to Second Opinion Live. Hey, thanks for having me on. Can you find Matt a job, a real one, please? <laughs> I won't have that kind of talk, Michael. I think he has enough irons in the fire. Somewhere yeah. in Moscow, Idaho or something. <laughs> All right, tell us what's going on here. Well, um, we uh, just partnered with Reach on Powering Your Career Centers uh, with the wide uh, range and wide audience that you have. We just felt like it was a great opportunity to add additional features to the you know the ReachMD community. Uh, so young physicians or physicians wishing to relocate or anyone wanting a job should go to this area of our site and you'll help find them a job, correct? Yeah, correct. Uh, the Career Center now at REACH has a variety of, of services focused on the physician um, as an employee or as an employer. Uh, if, if they're a practice owner and they're looking to add a partner, there's, uh, there's features there for them to post a job and recruit uh, a new uh, partner or, or employee for the the practice, or if they're looking to just you know do some locum tenens work in Hawaii, there are there are thousands of jobs available throughout all 50 states, and uh, they are segmented into approximately 110 subspecialties, so that it makes the search uh, much more convenient for the physician. Well, take us through the process. When you go to the website, do you apply directly to these job sites or places, or do you have to go through a process in the site itself? That's a great question. Um, one thing, we're not a recruiting agency, and we're not affiliated with a recruiting agency. We are a true employment job board. So this is, uh, the individuals can choose to not register and use some of the tools that are built into the site. They can just directly apply, or they can choose to set up an actual profile um, where they can manage multiple resumes 
and also track a history of who they've applied to, when they've applied to, and kind of have a, a career uh, archive, if you will, of, of where they've been and, and, and what their thoughts were as they went through the employment process. So they will ultimately talk directly to the HR or the hiring authority within any organization that's posting the job there. They do not talk to someone directly associated with with the Health Jobs Nationwide Network. Is it true that listeners of Second Opinion Live have a better chance of getting a great job someplace in a wonderful area? Absolutely. There's a little note section for your resume, and you can put that you are a listener. And Matt and I check off that that's authentic. We know our listeners. The the numbers don't lie on that one. That's right. Numbers don't lie. What have you found in terms of trends for employers and employees using these kinds of services? Do you find that there's any popular choices for occupation? Do people uh, really favor locum tenens work that are looking for this? Is there a certain sentiment among physicians who are looking for different types of employment or employees? Yeah, as far as trends, it's interesting that your previous guest was also uh, focused on how things are going online. Um, classified ads, when a physician used to be looking for employment opportunities, it was grab the New York Times, Chicago, uh, you know, you went to the newspaper, you went to magazines that you received, but there's an enormous trend for utilizing online just simply because of the capabilities to query enormous amounts of information on the, on the job opportunity side um, trends as far as employment goes, you know, across the board, there are, um, with, with locum you had mentioned, that I think one of the things that's unique about today is, as I was saying, there's so much information available online, and you can query so many opportunities so quickly and build automated, customized search uh, agents that enable you to know instantaneously when an, an opportunity came available in your your hometown or, or where you did your internship, um, there's a little bit more of a, of a feeling like there's a lot of opportunities out there for me. So you do see more people uh, jumping into locum tenens than traditionally in the past. And uh, I think it's just the new age that we're in is there are a tremendous amount of opportunities and it's, it's quite uh, efficient looking for the right opportunity. Well, we are glad to be partnering with you, and we hope that all of our listeners who want jobs will go there. Our guest has been healthcare staffing specialist Tim Rush. He's going to get you a job, Matt, I'm telling you. And Tim, thank you for joining <laughs> us today. Thanks, guys. <laughs> I don't Bye-bye. appreciate the sentiment there, Michael. <laughs> well, now on to the ReachMD forum, Matt. A debate from the land down under about whether mandatory bicycle helmet laws are actually detrimental to Australia's public health. Can you believe that? And you can believe my bicycle went in for an overhaul today. I, I can definitely have to overhaul my helmet. The way you probably move on that thing. So uh, here's some background on the debate, fueled by leading public health figure and cycling advocate Dr. Chris Russell, who's a clinical associate professor at the University of Sydney. Dr. Russell calls the current mandatory helmet laws, quote-unquote, failed public policy arguing that declines in head injuries over the past 20 years don't show helmets making much of a difference. Instead, he points to improvements in road and traffic conditions as the source, while helmets, as he says, pose a barrier to cycling and its health benefits. Wow. 
Yeah, well, that's interesting. Well, if I'm in an accident, remember, I bleed Greenberg. Okay, well, the history of this... It's funny the first time. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's funny the second time. Every time. Australia was the first country in the world to impose uniform national mandatory bicycle helmet legislation beginning in 1990. It's pretty right. good for a country populated by criminals. Uh, <laughs> They're going to love that you just know, said that. I know, I know, I know. Well, two papers compared serious head injuries in cyclists versus pedestrians before and after the laws were put in place. It turns out, Matthew, that pedestrian injuries declined by 8% more than cyclists, and they don't wear helmets. Well, maybe not you. Maybe they do wear helmets to walk around on there. I don't know. So I... kangaroos won't jump on their head. A separate government data also showed an increase in cyclist injuries and hospital admissions despite having fewer people cycling during most of the 1990s. Hmm. Some of the researchers argued that helmets may give drivers the faulty impression that cyclists are experienced, leading to riskier driving behaviors around them. Maybe the cyclists don't eat or drink. That's the thing. For 70 years, be a cyclist who doesn't eat or drink. That's a, that's a something yogi I'd, cyclist. I'd give it a shot if I were you. I don't know if I... I mean, it seems a little bit tenuous here, saying that given the faulty impression, you know, cyclists are experienced. I, I don't know how much I buy into that. But I do think, personally, that if you're going to be wearing a helmet or have a helmet law, at least it fosters some sort of impression or attitude towards safety. About be careful, right? Yeah, be careful. I mean, I, I think personally it doesn't really harm you as much as these other people are saying in terms of being a barrier to cycling. I, how much is a helmet a barrier to cycling? Well, I don't think so. I, I wear mine, and you can certainly see out there. I, I think what it will... You're, you're wearing one right now. Yeah. <laughs> it absolutely <laughs> may, you know, it may not prevent a brain injury, but it sure prevents a scraped face and you know, your eyes being pulled out. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Mine does. We should put it out there, though, that there was a study done from Macquarie University in Sydney that looked at the bicycle helmet laws incurring a health cost to the country of approximately half a billion dollars every year. We seem to see all sorts of health costs incurred by any which thing, and I'm not sure how much I buy into that. But My grandchildren are still going to wear their helmets. They're probably wearing them right now as well. Yeah, they'll wear them. Influence is heavy from your side of the family. So the question being, how does this shape the views of U.S. policies. You think there should be mandatory bicycle helmet laws here? I think we should do a whole show about that. I am ready and willing. All right. An entire show. We've talked not, to the producers. I am not afraid. <laughs> <laughs> I am. All right. I think that's going to about do it for us here on Second Opinion Live. Michael's got to run to his reservation at a new restaurant that serves neither food nor water. So why don't you jump on that bandwagon? They have no bathrooms either. (laughs) All right. Until next time, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And for more about Second Opinion Live on ReachMD, visit our website at reachmd.com slash SOL. Feel free to give us a shout on Twitter, online, and on Facebook. Thanks to the guys in the control room. Thanks to our producers. Uh, There's still a crisis in Haiti. Please remember that. Don't forget about them. You can follow us on your iPhone. Until next time, I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. Thank you for joining us. Keep your radio dialed in to ReachMDXM160.